This is The Squad Room, a podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the 21st season of SVU. If you have not watched episode 2119, Solving for the Unknowns, we advise you to do so before listening. Hello and welcome back to The Squad Room, the official Law & Order SVU podcast. I am your host, Anthony Roman, and this is episode 2119, Solving for the Unknowns. And on the program, we welcome back Peter Scanavino as he answers more questions from the fans. After that, co-writer Kathy Doby tells us all about creating this very unique script. And finally, supervising producer Mark Dragan walks us through the post-production process. This is all happening right here on The Squad Room, which, as always, is brought to you by NBC and Wolf Entertainment. We're here in The Squad Room, Peter Scanavino, and we're going to answer some more of the questions from the fans. And this is the first one. Is there a particular scene that has already aired that you wish you could redo? That I wish I could redo? I mean, I can't think of one, but there definitely are. Or weeks later, you'll be like, oh, that would have been a much more interesting take on it. I mean, I can't remember any one specifically, but that definitely happens. And I think that's true for everybody on the show. Yeah. Well, you know, days later, you'll be like, oh, that's what that scene was about. Can you go back to that? Because I always ask the actor, that's what that scene was about. Are you guys sometimes moving so quick and out of context that you slightly lose track of what's happening in a scene? It's not, I mean, it it is done out of context, but part of your job is the actors to know what the context is. So that's part of the preparation. You do move pretty fast, but it's not like a play. You're doing three weeks of rehearsal. You really get involved in that way. And the nature of a television show, you just have to keep moving. So sometimes you definitely think, oh, I I think I would have done that differently if I had another chance or if we had 12 hours to shoot this scene, try out different things. You know, you just don't have that luxury is the the reality of the situation. How much do you know about the episode that you're going to the read-through for? Oh, I've read it. So I know, and they send a research packet, so you're familiar with the material. So it's really good to read it and be pretty familiar with the episode before you even do the read-through so that if you have any concerns, any questions, you can kind of clarify that before you get into the scene because what you don't want to do is on the day you're filming the scene, say, oh, I've got a problem with this and that. You know, that's got to be so incredibly annoying to the writers when an actor does that. And, you know, sometimes I am guilty of it. But, you know, you just want to make sure that that's all set and any kind of issues you have have been resolved before you're there to film. Because when it's the day, it's time to, it's not the time to work. It. Yeah. You know? What's a research packet? Uh, the research packet will usually be links to the articles from which the episode is based off of. So basically that. You try and get all that in, even though you're working every day here. Well, sometimes you do. I think you can make a decision as the actor. Does it benefit me to know this backstory or does it not? Would I rather just take the script as the world we're in or do I want to kind of have an understanding? And sometimes it'll be good because you can read the script and you might say, Oh, this seems outlandish. And then you'll read the research pack and you're like, no, this is actually real. This happened. Right. Okay, so it will anchor you in the reality of the script sometimes. That's amazing. The research pack has never come up on the podcast. Oh, yeah. Bring um, it up. Thank you. Will we get to see more of Carisi's family and learn more about your past? Um, I don't know. I'm not in charge of that. That's uh, a Warren Light <laughs> question, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, that's a Warren yeah. Light. Send those questions to Warren. Do you ever um, just casually say, hey, Warren, it'd be great to know, like, about my pastor? Is that, like, you would never do that to No, you? of course. Yeah. And he's absolutely open to that. Yeah. 
but again, the show, you only, I think it's only 44 minutes that actually air. Yeah. So our show, you have to have the plot and storyline and all the elements that move that forward. And then whatever kind of character elements you can bring into that or even better intertwine them into the story, story yeah. you know, is great. But the truth is, you know, you just don't have the bandwidth for a lot of that. So... I would love more Carisi backstory, but I don't want to do it at the expense of a compelling episode. So that's paramount for me as an actor and a part of this show, which is just telling the story. What was your favorite scene to film with Mariska ever? My, my, fa- <laughs> my favorite scene filmed with Mariska ever. I'll say two. I like the scene in my, um, I can't remember the name of the episode, but it was my first kind of courtroom episode where I win. And, you know, I was really down. She I think paints for vengeance. Get fired. Yeah, she paints for vengeance. And I'm really down. I think I'm going to get fired because I've blown it in my first day at court. And she comes in and gives me a pep talk. And just that scene when we were filming it, it felt very, it was very quiet. And it, it felt like it was two in the morning. And it was very intimate in this way, kind of building off of the relationship that Creasy and Benson have, which I think is very supportive and mutually supportive now. So she was exactly the person he needed at that moment. But just in the general arc of my favorite scene I've ever shot with Mariska, it was one where she didn't have any lines, and it was the episode where Mike Dodds dies, and we come in, and she was sleeping on Tucker's shoulder. This is when they were together, and he just gave us like a shh kind of motion, and... I thought, thought like a vulnerable human scene of Captain Benson that you don't get to see too often, that she is a human being yeah. with all the sensitivities, wants, and needs of a person. She's know? not a superhero. Yes, yeah, she's not. Yeah. She's a human yeah. being. That's great. Um, I will say that Mariska came on the podcast and talked about how much she loved that scene and she paints for vengeance as uh, well. Yeah. Thanks. So the feeling is mutual. Good, good. <laughs> I don't know if it's her favorite of all time. But <laughs> we'll just say it is and stick with that. How about that? Does Carisi feel pressure to ensure he helps the squad and Hadid? Do you feel torn between both? Um, I think he's kind of finding his own path. And he's losing that kind of feeling of being torn between the two. And maybe he's getting a little more savvy in how to navigate the political minefield of his new office but also he knows what he wants and it's not about placating anybody for him. I think he's very clear and I think he's settling into what he wants out of this. And I think he wants to move up the ADA ladder and I think he has grand designs on himself as an attorney. All right. Has your view of the criminal justice system changed since becoming moving over to the DA's office? Are there any issues that you would like to see covered from a legal standpoint? in upcoming episodes. You get how messy and complicated it is, especially in terms of due process and the rights of the accused. And sometimes, you know, it can seem so unjust that the guy or whoever doesn't have to testify and they can just sit there. I think I said that in She Paints for Vengeance, you know, he's just sitting there in the the corner, he's smirking, you know, he doesn't have to testify, it's not fair. And a lot of times those things do seem unfair, but then you understand why they're there because what if somebody is falsely accused, you know what I mean? So you you understand that it's an imperfect system, but it's kind of striving to, or ideally, as long as the law is equally applied, it's trying to, you know, adjust outcome. So it's just, there's no, I'm just hyper aware of that there's no 
perfect system. There's no perfect fix to a lot of these things that may seem emotionally or instinctually like that's not fair. But again, in a different circumstance, you'd be so happy that you had that law or, you know, the Fifth Amendment or... So it's kind of just opened my mind up to the complexity of the legal system. Do you know more about the legal system, just Peter Scanavino, since season 21? Oh, yeah. I mean, in terms of indictment, uh, grand jury, and just the actual process of, of how a, a crime gets adjudicated or just the amount of plea deals. So I, I've, I've learned a lot, and hopefully I have a, a decent framework to uh, <laughs> know what I'm talking about. Was that like um, when Warren called you and said, that you were making a move, is that something you did? Like, I got to go do some research and learn more? Well, it's kind of one of those things. I think you just assume you know something. Yeah. And then you're like, what does happen? In crime? And you're like, oh, I should, I actually don't know what that is. I should look it up. And I honestly, I find a lot of it fascinating and it kind of informs a lot of what's even happening in the news. Like in terms of if you can read a headline, you'd be like, oh, that doesn't sound right. right Let me look right. into that. And you're like, oh, that's a clickbait headline or that's not the truth of the matter or that's not legally what's going on. Yeah. Um, I just feel like it's made me realize things are so much more nuanced and, and, and complicated in, in a lot of aspects in the legal system. Do you have your own conversations with Ann Milgram, who's the legal consultant? I remember last year I kind of had a, a back and forth with her about underage marriage in Ohio, I, I think. I, mean, I can't remember what state it was, but I got into that and I was reading some articles. And I was like, oh, their age is 16 and they've changed this law and this is 16, but the law in New York is 17 and the law in Massachusetts is 14. And I was like getting into all the laws. So I was like, why are we painting this as this kind of backwards state law? So we kind of got back and forth with uh, with that. But this year I haven't, uh, haven't yet. But, you know, if I ever have any questions, I think she'd definitely be one of the first people I'd email. She's incredible. She came on and was just like, I learned a lot yeah. in, in 20 minutes. Well, Peter Scandavino, thank you so much for answering the fans' questions. Yeah, of course. And uh, have a great day. Thank All you. All right. Awesome. You got it. Kathy Doby did a tremendous amount of research on drug-facilitated rape in preparation for co-writing Solving for the Unknowns. We discussed how that research led to the creation of this episode. I'm on the squad room with Kathy Doby, and we are talking about Solving for the Unknowns, which was written by Kathy Doby and Brianna Yellen. Yes, it was. Thanks for coming on, Kathy. Thank you, Anthony. And I wanted to talk about just the basic idea, where it came from, how you got started on this with Brianna. Well, actually... This also came from some reporting that I had done on drug-facilitated rape and talking with women who work in this field and also some survivors of drug-facilitated rape and realizing that this issue is just not on anybody's radar. It's uh, not on law enforcement's radar, not on prosecutors' radar. You can find very few articles out there, and it's just really, really important. And so we thought it would be a great subject for an episode um, to bring this to light. And did the idea that someone could be drugged and no one could tell, that's a real thing? Oh, it's a real thing. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, I, it was researching this was an eye-opener for me. Women who go through this end up being basically gaslit by their own bodies. They will go in, report a rape, say they think they've been drugged, and then when they go and take blood and urine the tox screen comes back negative. And so law enforcement will tell them, hey, it's negative. Nothing happened to you. You must have had too much to drink. Some women know, absolutely know that something else happened, but they have no proof. 
and other women begin to doubt themselves and think, well, you know, maybe I did have one too many drinks. Maybe it did affect me this way. It's a really horrible, nefarious, disgusting thing to do. And it happens a lot. And I think there was a report uh, about two years ago, the UN came out with a report saying that there were hundreds of these newly synthesized drugs circulating around the world, but certainly entering this country each year. You know, uh, police departments and labs and things, they can't keep up. They don't know what these substances are. They don't have tests for them. You have been drugged. You have been sexually assaulted, but you don't have the usual proof. So when Olivia is saying that it's testing for over 300 drugs, that's true? And these still escape that test? Yes, that's true. That's true in New York. I don't know in other parts of the country how many drugs they test for. But these drugs are outside of the 300 that are tested uh, here in the city. And there's hundreds of them. People that commit drug-facilitated rape, in a sense, they do their research, right? And probably some of the research is done on the dark web. And you will find that some drugs are used because they leave your body very quickly. And those would be like GHB. And so therefore, they're not going to show up in a talk screen unless you get to a hospital right away. And the thing about drug-facilitated rape is you're often very confused. Your brain's not working right. It takes you a couple of days to put things together. Uh, So there's that problem. And then you have the fact that there are drugs that are also newly synthesized that will never come up in a talk screen, even if they stayed in your body for days. You've done this research. You bring it in. How does it end up that it's you and Brianna? How does it end up that Warren and Julie want to go with an idea like that? Is that something you're working on months ago or is it come together quick? I think it came together really quickly, this one. I mean, you know, Warren and, and Julie will ask all the writers to pitch ideas to them. And sometimes we're doing that in a group, in a room. Uh, A lot of times we're doing it just shooting them an email and getting a minute with them and saying, what do you think about this issue? And Warren and Julie were both very interested in this and then paired Brianna and I together to work on it, which I have a great deal of fun working with Brianna. And this is something that we should do. Not everything has a like a social message behind it. But this actually really does. I can imagine that there will be a lot of women watching this. They're going to sit back and say, oh, so that's what happened to me. Right. Oh, the police dropped my case. You know, they dropped my case because they said that my talk screen came back negative. I've been thinking I'm crazy. So I think that this is a really important episode because it's a really important issue. Obviously, you know what you bring. You know what your strengths are. What do you think Brianna brings to the script, something like this? Like, how does two people writing together work? Well, it's worked differently in each pair that I've been in. I know that some writers will pair it act by act. You know, I'll take the opening in acts one and two and you take three, four and five. Oh, I didn't know that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's interesting. And it often works better if what you do is you take certain characters in it and you say, you write all of the sections with this character. I'm going to write all the sections with this group of characters. So you might split like the perps and the victims, you know, and you take all of the perps and I'll take none if you only have one perp. You know what I mean? So something like this, someone could have Luke and Ash? Yes, Someone could have Luke and Ash, and there are bad guys in this, and they're a very particular kind of bad guys. So they're both shitheads in different ways. <laughs> you know, they're, they're both immoral guys, but in completely different ways. And, and we all know how the ways people can be bad, and even ourselves are sometimes do horrible things, and we lie to ourselves, and that's kind of Luke. 
you know, right. um, Luke is constantly bullshitting himself and constantly equivocating and constantly trying to play the good guy, right? I'm the good guy, you know, I'm a sweetheart. I'm on the side of all of you women, you know? Yeah. So he lies to himself and thinks that if he's very polite and smiles a lot and is humble, somehow he'll get away with it. And Ash is just cold. I don't think Ash has ever broken a sweat in his life. He has complete contempt. And I think not just for women, but for men. I think that's very clear that he thinks he is smarter than other human beings. And Ash doesn't really get punished very much, does he? In this? No. One of the things I thought was that the casting of Luke Eddie K. Thomas and Ash, Daniel London, was really, really perfect. Wasn't it? Yeah, I was pretty blown away. And I know it's hard because there's limited time and sometimes you don't get the ideal people for each part, but they were both outstanding. Yeah, it was spot on. They're such great actors and a complete joy to work with. It was interesting because working with Daniel London, he kind of stayed in character. You know, a lot of times <laughs> actors will like, you know, between takes, they'll goof with you or joke or whatever. But he had to stay like very intensely in focus. Yeah. And so he always looked like he was kind of chewing on something, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> between takes. And it showed, you know, Eddie K. Thomas is just brilliant, I thought, in that role. You He's know, so good. I was just yeah. blown away. And just going back to the beginning in the teaser, we start this episode with obviously big news for Rollins. I and, know, right? <laughs> it all starts out so happy. And I was wondering, was that from Warren and Julie? Was that something you guys have been thinking about through? Because I've been thinking all season that that was going to happen, but I had no idea if it would. Um, was right. that something you guys knew a while ago? I think Warren and Julie have been thinking about it for a while. I know Brianna really wanted to do it. You know, yeah. um, we just had to promote her. Um, of course. So, yeah, so it was it was very happy. Plus, it was, you know, gave them a chance to be. I mean, it's funny that like a, a girl's night out is at the shooting range. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> you know, and and, it, you know, it was nice to see Rollins hooting and hollering and a real hug between the two of them. Yeah. All of that. So it starts off sweet and happy. This episode. People like to see a hug between them, too. Yes, exactly. And exactly. and I also there's a certain laugh you get out of Kelly. Yes. And she does it in that scene. That's like a really happy Kelly. Yes. And you got it there. So that was Yes. I, I enjoyed and that. And the woo woo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so moving in, we get obviously now the cops are coming in their car and we have Jill driving a cupcake truck. And mm -hmm. I was wondering why she drives a cupcake truck. What were you guys thinking? We wanted a woman who's like running her own business, you know, a woman in her 30s, a woman who has gotten it together. I think partially just to show really how this could happen to anybody. And I don't know why cupcake truck, you know, sometimes it's just something appears in your mind and it just seems delightful, even though something horrible is going to happen. Right. And the idea of a truck with a giant cupcake on top smashing into a cop car just seemed too wonderful, you know? <laughs> it was. That's exactly uh, right. <laughs> I think what you're saying about her being at a certain point in her life and successful, you know, when she says her age, it does register because you are like, oh, wow, this is someone in their 30s. This is not a kid. This is happening to an adult. And I think there's something about that. Not that it makes a difference what the age is, but something about where she is in her life is important to the story. And yes, absolutely. When you think that, you know, you're in a place in your life where what you've learned is, you know, how to achieve certain things that you like, a certain amount of control and self-control in your life, 
and then you can't control this thing. Also, you know, we kind of have this like mistaken belief that rape victims are usually younger and they're teenage and they're in their 20s right. and rapists prey on younger women. And that's actually not true. The statistics don't hold that up. So I think we wanted to show women who were victims who were in their 30s, all of whom have their lives together and their vulnerability is that they're dating. <laughs> yeah. So it takes Jill until the arraignment because she's arrested. She's in some kind of drunk driving. It's not until the arraignment that she figures out something happened to her, right? And that's something you were talking about earlier where it can take quite some time. Yes. What happens with a lot of these drugs is it's a very odd feeling because your brain just isn't working right. You're walking. You can talk. You don't sound drunk. You're not slurring. You can get yourself in a car. Maybe you can get yourself home without crashing, but you're not able to access all the different elements of the situation and then pull them together in a way that you can understand them. It really messes with your brain. And then, of course, the after effect is also constantly messing with your psyche because you have a big blank hole where an evening was supposed to be or a day was supposed to be. That's really scary. When you start talking about the dating apps, like Rollins is saying you can't get any info out of them. Is that also true? Is that based on research you've done? Yes, that's also true. They fight law enforcement and they don't give information. The encryption is another thing entirely because apparently the companies can't even unencrypt some of these triply encrypted files. But dating apps are notorious for not helping out law enforcement and for often keeping people on the dating apps well after many women have reported, hey, I had a date with this guy. He raped me. You need to take him off this app. And then they will find, the women will go back on and see that he's still on there. So something with the character traits that you have for Luke is that one of the things that he does is he counts out the money, right? That's a big Mm -hmm. thing. Everybody says it. What are you indicating with that? He just seemed like that type of guy that would be kind of stingy with himself, you know? I have to say, when I first thought about counting out the money, really what I thought it would illustrate was Ash's contempt. Ash used it as almost like against him, you know, and he counted yeah, out the money. Yeah, why does he say that? There is something behind it, right? He's annoyed by it or he's annoyed with him? Yeah, because it's, just kind hates of a, everybody? it's kind of a goofy, dumb thing to do in Ash's head, you know? Right. I mean, you right. just throw your $50 bill, you throw your card down on the table. So the idea, you know, in the bar, so the idea that you're sitting there going 10, 20, counting aloud, right? He would have contempt for that because right. Ash has contempt for anything that speaks of being... Newman or a little bumbling or, you know. Got it. That's very cool. And th- was that your idea? Uh, yes. Nice. I like that. And it, it was you. a trait because it happens in Delhi, right? It's something everybody is aware of when talking about Luke. Yes. It's fun in a way when you can pepper a script with something like that. And then moving on. So then he has a scene in his apartment. Finn and Kat show up. And obviously there's a weird energy to that scene. And I thought that was a very well written and very well acted scene. Beautifully. Just like, what do you think is happening in that room there? <laughs> I just well, first of all, the scene starts with the you know pizza pizza baby, right? Right. He's so uh, good, Ice. Right. Right up front. Yes. Yeah. So so you know it is it is a good cop technique to come at them from the side, surprise them. Maybe something interesting will spill out. So they do right. that, and inside Luke is very busy playing the good dumb guy. I remember when like when I was a little kid and I wanted to stay home uh, and uh, not go to school and I so I had to pretend I was sick. But the only way I knew how to pretend I was sick was to act depressed. <laughs> Cuz you know you can't really like so you just be like 
mommy, I don't feel good. You know, you talk like that. And uh, in a way, Luke reminds me of that, that he's like, okay, they're accusing me of something. I'll just be kind of this like floppy eared dog kind of guy. You know, my favorite part of that scene is when they're saying that they've seen this all in surveillance. And he goes, oh, you know, we kind of live in a a police. It's kind of a police state, isn't it? Well, well, that can be a good thing, right? (laughs) Yeah. And then the look that Kat gives him. Is great. I that know. line was my next question. That's a really, really good scene. And I think you get a real good sense of Luke kind of very quickly in there. And then so Benson, she's on to the Jape rape thing pretty quickly, right? She believes that that's what happened. The drug facilitated rape? Yeah. 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 She knows how it works. She knows what some of the uh, red flags and the signs are. And, you know, Kat is not as aware. Right. And she represents really what a lot of uh, the level of knowledge a lot of cops and detectives have right now, real ones in the real world, where, hey, you know, we test for 300 substances. If the guy drugged you, we're going to find it. Don't you worry. Right. But no, we're not going to find it. So Olivia knows this already. And her interrogation scene is very strong, I thought, with Luke right there. Oh, it's wonderful. Right after. And next part I had in mind was where Rebecca recognized, you bring in Rebecca, Susanna Flood, and she recognizes him in the lineup. And even though we've seen people be recognized in the lineup before on TV many, many times, that's a pretty heavy scene and also a really, really well-acted scene when she breaks down. It sure is. Susanna Flood was amazing. She Really, just- the casting in this is outstanding. I know. It's the, I the know. performances. Well, kudos to our casting director. But, you know, the thing with Susanna is every time I watched her do that scene, every single take, I had tears in my eyes. Yeah. It's so beautifully done. And the idea of just everything breaking apart when you're face to face with the person who did this and then what happens is you go into a panic attack uh, feels very real to me. Yeah, you know? it's definitely jarring and... uh just well executed, well written, well acted. After that, I just a couple comedic lines I thought, uh, you know, slightly funny was I like when Kat says, You tell us, poor boy. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> she delivers that very well. And I really like Carisi uh, at the breakfast truck where he's trying to, you know, make a point that he's not a detective anymore. And uh, yes, yes. Here's your egg, egg sandwich detective. <laughs> so, That's a beautiful scene. That's a very funny scene. Yeah, a couple laughs. So Benson figures the only way forward is to reach out to the public, right? And put a public message out there yep. because they need more people to come forward. Mm-hmm. And, and we, we see her in her captain's uniform for the first time. Another big thing, right? <laughs> Kelly gets promoted. <laughs> that was a great scene. Seeing her there, I think the fans are going to love that. But, you know, so there's an elderly woman watching the show. We don't know exactly what's happening. And then you meet a, a wheelchair-bound survivor who had a stroke from this process. Why did you feel the need to go there? Which is obviously you're taking this to the next level of trauma, I guess. Um, or, you know, Because it's happened um, right. in real life. The problem with using these newly synthesized and homemade drugs, substances, mixtures, is that nobody really knows how they affect people. It really is literally like you're experimenting on you know, your victims. And you don't know the proper dosages. And there have been cases uh, where women have ended up with some sort of permanent physical damage from it. So, so you weren't doing it to make a point. You were doing it because it's something that happens. Yeah, exactly. 
And we get to meet Ash a bit now and we know what's going on with him. Obviously, we go into his apartment and he's a very twisted person who fancies himself some kind of genius, right? What is the joy he's getting out of this? Well, he obviously likes to experiment with real people. He wants real subjects. I think there's a line there where he's a puppet master. I think that he likes to control people and it's a situation he creates, right? Uh, By giving the drugs and then being able to watch the film, it's as if he has, he's created the rape and he gets to view his creation at the end. I always sort of thought of Ash as being, you know, in a way like asexual, like he's not interested in women. He's not interested in men. He's interested in manipulation. So obviously Ash gets himself into less trouble in the interrogation room and somewhat of a confession after he's confronted by Luke, right? But it doesn't mm-hmm. doesn't really get what he deserves. But I don't think it was possible to do that, right? Given the nature of the crimes. No, no, it wasn't possible. Um, I mean, I wish I could be a little more specific right now, but the exact crime he's charged with, actually, you cannot get that much time for it. But also we needed to find the other rapists. And he did have that held over us. Yes. Uh, So some wheeling and dealing went on, you know, get him a couple of years behind bars, but be able to catch all of the other guys that were out there raping women. And maybe through that, be able to connect with their victims. So I think that kind of thing goes on a lot, right? Where you have to kind of do, you know, the lesser of three bulls or the lesser of two good outcomes, however you want to put it. And then you have that, which is a really nice montage, I guess, where the detectives go to each of the survivors and tell them the news and and we see their reactions. And I thought that was just kind of amazing, honestly. Thank you. Well, you know, what's really interesting is that detectives have said they will do work on cold cases at NYPD and probably other departments do it across the country, too. Though rape and sexual assault never, ever get even close to the manpower and attention and competence in the investigations that they deserve. But you do have detectives that will research these cold case rapes. And when they make an arrest, they will travel or when they open the reopen the investigation, they will travel around the country, like maybe, you know, fly to Oklahoma and show up on some survivor's door knock on the door and they say that always again and again, doesn't matter how much time has passed, when the woman answers the door, she will say, did you get him? Or are you here about the rape? It's amazing to me. So we wanted that feeling in there, even though this is a much shorter time span. Well, Kathy Doby, thank you so much for coming on the Squad Room, talking about this episode. Thank you. It's always great to talk to you. Thank you. And I'll see you in season 22. Yeah. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Thank you. Mark Dragon has been running posts for many seasons now at SVU. He dropped by and gave us a step-by-step breakdown of that process. I am in the squad room with Mark Dragon, supervising producer on Law & Order SVU, an old friend of mine. How you doing, Mark? Hey, doing great, Anthony. Thanks for having me. Of course. How did you end up involved in the SVU universe? Oh, that's... A very long story that goes back 15 years now. I started as a post coordinator. I was hired to work on Law and Order, the original Law and Order, Law and Order Criminal Intent, Law and Order SVU. And I just kind of worked my way through all the different parts of post production and all the positions with Arthur Forney and Peter Jankowski. And um, 
all the producers and editors, and now I've landed on SVU. And it's been a number of years that I've been working on the show, kind of managing the post-production process and the post-department, I should say. What was your first season with SVU, running post? I think it's been seven or eight years now. I think it was the first season that Warren started, which I think was season, uh, was it 14? 13. Could be wrong. 13. 13. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Uh, so, so we met, okay, I met you, um, you had just taken over post at that point. Yeah. It was Shana and John Smith before me and everybody's still working and doing their thing. I just happened to land on SVU and um, continuing to go, which is great. So tell me what your involvement in an episode is, or really actually, when does it begin? We're located in Los Angeles. We're a little bit removed from production, but it's always nice to go out to New York to see everybody, producers, cast, crew, at the beginning and end of a season just to keep the connections really nice. But once the footage is shot, uh, twice a day, it goes to the production office and it'll be shipped over via a very large fiber line to our offices in Los Angeles. And... Uh, from the production office. And our assistants will download the footage, organize it, and get it prepped and ready for the editors. And we have three editors working on SVU. So they rotate and they take the dailies and with the scripts, the tone notes, concept notes, all the conversations that we've had about any particular issues or concerns or visions that Warren and Julie have or anything that comes up and they go to town. And the editors get eight days to shoot an episode, and then they get four days for an editor's cut. Um, should I go down this whole process, or I mean, yeah, I guess. Are you on the tone meeting calls, and are are you part of those? I'm not usually. I would love to be more. I do read all the notes, but we have, you know, in post production, we have we're in any shape of four or five episodes. So a lot of times, I'll be on the mixing stage or in editorial with the editors trying to lock picture. So a lot of times, you know, I'm not available for those, but I do read all the notes and get a vision for what the writer's ideas are and tone. And then as it goes through, so the editors as well, and then we'll go for it. And then, when, you know, once you get the footage, it's a little bit different than maybe what was toned or scripted or shot. You know, it's such a collaboration and it changes and what you get in the Avid maybe will be a little bit different. And then we'll, you know, the editors will work through that. And I will. And then with Arthur Forday and kind of go from there. Are you ever surprised at how different it turns out than what's on the page? I'm not surprised. I'm very open-minded. You know, I, I always say that my favorite part of my job, there's two parts. The first is watching the director's cut. Because even after the script, reading the script and watching dailies and conversations about the episodes, that moment when you actually sit down and watch it all together as a full episode is really exciting because it can be very different. You know, the, the tone can come across or maybe a little different. Um, and that's really cool because that's really the, the start of our process and our conversation in post-production and in editorial to tell the best story that we can for SVU. So that's really fun for me. And then on the flip side, to watch the show the day before we deliver to the network on the mixing stage with all the elements that we've worked on throughout the time that we've had the episode and everything's together. We have all of our VFX, color correction on the picture side. We have the composition and music from Mike Post. 
We have all the sound design and Foley and looping and ADR and all the pieces of the puzzle and everything mix, is mixed together in, in its final way. And that's the culmination of our hard work. So those are the two parts that I really enjoy. But I'm not surprised, to, for a long-winded answer, no, I'm not surprised when things change a little. It's just exciting to figure out how to make it work and to tell the best story we can. I think it's very interesting and exciting. Isn't that cool, though? Yeah, yeah. You know, because you, you see it one way, and then, you know, the collaboration of our showrunner and the writing staff and even choices from casting and production design and locations right. Right. and all the little pieces. It's just really cool to see. You know, one of the goals in editorial with our super talented editors, you know, we have Karen Stern, Leon Ortiz, and Oscar Lazoya, and those three are such good storytellers that sometimes if something comes across and maybe it's a little clunky or it's not working as well as someone would have hoped, they're so good at giving the emotion where it needs and telling really good stories within each scene. And so that's the interesting thing. When you watch a director's cut, maybe something's not working or in your gut emotionally, you're not feeling it. Then you get notes from the writers and producers and from the network. And, and then you figure out, like, you know, along with all of these talented people and all these people that know what they're doing to figure out how to make that work. And hopefully by the end, it's better. Right. You know, right. I think that's the goal. So does every director come out and do a director's cut or do some of them do them from New York? Uh, not on SVU. A lot of them do it remotely. You know, a lot of directors have been working for so long and there's such a secondhand with the producers and with the editors. You know, everybody has their own process. Right. So some will call in after they've seen their cut with a bunch of notes. Some will send emails, you know, daily or weekly with concerns. Some will just do a quick phone call and let the process go. You know, there's a lot of trust with the director giving the editor the responsibility to take their footage and work it, so. Would you say most of the concerns of the initial rounds of notes, maybe from director or from Warren and stuff, is performance-based? Like, are they concerned that it wasn't the best take? Or what would you say you come across in that first round of notes? That's a difficult question because it's all over the place. I think it can be anything. Uh, maybe there's something in a take of dailies that you saw that the editor chose a different take for a different reason. It really depends on the scene and the story and how everything came together during production, which is its own animal, which we don't have to deal with. Right. But I guess I'm saying, do you find that directors have in their mind, like, I know there's a better take of that actor there? Well, you know, there's a funny editorial joke that the editor always chooses the second best take so everyone else can find the best take. Um, <laughs> of course, they're trying to make the best scene. Uh, you know, maybe sometimes for one reason or something, they had a vision for something and you try it. And if it works, great. And if it doesn't work, then you go back to an original idea. But I think everybody's so open-minded and so collaborative and open to ideas to tell the best stories that, you know, you have to be open-minded and say, you know what? That is a better taker. Right. You know, Arthur will watch a show and... He's so good at knowing what works that he will see something and give a note and the editors will be able to take that note and make the show better. You know, just like notes from New York with Warren and Julie and Norberto. Who signs off on the cut when it's locked? Who makes that decision that it is locked? When you say locked, you have to use air quotes. Yeah. I like joking that we're never really locked, but it's a process. Once uh, I'll kind of go back where we started 
Once the editor has their editor's cut, it goes to the director. They get a handful of days to work on their version, their vision of the episode. And then it goes to the producers. And that can be in as little as two or three days and as many as eight or nine days. And then once all the notes come in and the editor has accomplished what can be done, sometimes notes can't be done, you know, uh, right. if the footage isn't there or, you know, if something doesn't work. Um, and there's a reason for it. We'll send it to the network. Uh, Rebecca McGill at the network will give her notes, which is very important. And we will try and do as many of those that work within the show. And then uh, we put out what's called a planet run, which is our version of last looks. Right. And hopefully everybody's happy or as happy as they can be. And then we have to turn over to the sound department, the sound supervisor, so Foley and ADR can get started. So at some point, we have to lock our picture to to accomplish the rest of the post-production process to be able to deliver the show to the network. So talk about what a spotting session is and what happens after that cut is agreed upon and you have to bring in Mike Post and the various other elements. Well, hopefully once everybody's comfortable with the planet run and the producer's cuts, then we will turn over a locked picture. And that locked picture goes to multiple departments. Many of the shots will go to VFX when we do comps in iPads, computer screens, television monitors. We have split screens. Uh, We have to clean up picture. Maybe there's a shadow of something in a mirror or on a wall. So there's the picture side. The footage gets online and it goes to our color correction, to our colorist who will then put the final color on and make it look like SVU looks. Uh, And that takes a couple days to do. It takes two days. At the same time, simultaneously, I'll come over to Mike Post's office with his guys, Andy and John. We'll spot the show. And, you know, Mike's been doing this for so long and he's so good, but I just talk to him emotionally about music and I tell him where we've placed music, where we start a cue and where we end a cue and what we were feeling and what we were trying to achieve. And Mike goes to town. It takes him a a number of days to put together his music. Then we'll do another spot with our sound supervisor, Larry Mann, and we'll talk about ADR. We'll talk about the sounds of New York, because it's such an incredible city. And you have to be able to hear the dialogue, which is the most important, but you want to feel the city. Uh, There was a scene where Mariska opens the show walking on a street, and we had music playing from a cab driver, and we had sounds of people and the cars and everything. And it's such a dynamic and interesting element to the show. So we talk about that. We talk about the loopers that come in to do the walla. Let's say we're in a medical, in an emergency room or a hospital. Uh, And then Larry goes with his team of uh, sound editor, um, dialogue editor, effects editors, and they start to put the picture together. And then after five days, we'll get the music, we'll get the sound, we'll get the picture, and we'll go to the mixing stage. And that's where the two mixers, Derek and Greg, will put all those elements together and try and tell the best story that we can. And then we'll sit down, Arthur will come, I'll be there, the editor will be there, and we'll watch the show and give our notes about final tweaks, you know, if something's not working, if we have to try something else or whatnot. And and that's kind of our short process to get the show done. All right, well, Mark Reagan, thank you so much for coming on the Squad Room and letting us know about the post-production process. Cool. And uh, we want to hear more about it, so we like this a lot. Sounds good. No, I appreciate the time. All right, thanks, Mark. All right, Anthony, thank you. 
That's a wrap for The Squad Room. Please subscribe to The Squad Room wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a thing. We want to keep hearing from you. We love hearing from you. Follow us on Instagram at NBCSVU and at Wolf Entertainment. And follow us on Twitter at NBCSVU and at Wolf. And The Squad Room is hosted and produced by me, Anthony Roman. It is executive produced by Elliot Wolf and Warren Light. This episode was recorded by Jessica Damari. Post-production was handled by James Asciutto. And we'd like to say a big thank you to Victoria Pollock for all of her help. The Squad Room is brought to you by NBC and Wolf Entertainment. And we'll see you next week.